said, our panel is one of the core panels that uh, the, the ministry is sponsoring. And uh, as part of that, I'd like to invite Dr. Katrin Bonemann from the Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development to come up and say a few words about the ministry's uh, commitment and strategy with e-learning. Thank you, Charles. And thank you for this really nice uh, uh, opening words. Uh, um, I think we have never been announced as BMZ as the cool people, but um, thank you very much. It's a premiere. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for attending today's panel. It is my pleasure uh, to welcome you to our session on behalf of the Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development. Um, before I begin to uh, read my speech, um, I'd like to uh, give a special thank to you, Muatas, for, um, for sharing your uh, story uh, with us. Um, I really do believe that um, through personal stories we understand better. And this is important because then we can take action. So thank you so, so much. Um, we are building on the story of Muatas. And we are building on the stories of more than 65 million refugees worldwide. As you might know, the BMZ has substantially expanded its resources to support refugees and migrants in developing countries in the past years. In 2017, the BMZ alone invested almost 400 million Euros in a special initiative called Tackling the Root Causes of Displacement, Reintegrating Refugees. However, new challenges do not only call for new resources, new challenges also call for new approaches. Digital learning is such a new approach. More and more people have the opportunity to learn through the internet. Therefore, we have put the topic of e-learning in developing countries prominently in our coalition agreement of the new German government. And this is really important for us because once it entered in the, in the coalition agreement, we need to do it. It's like homework for us. So um, I'm very, very uh, keen on, on learning more about e-learning in this context because then you give us inspiration for, for new things we can do here. Um, in the context of forced displacement, we see a special need of our partners for uh, digital learning tools. We have addressed this in many fold ways. First, no lost generation. We are working with new donors to meet new challenges. We implemented, for example, a pilot project uh, with Chiron Open, uh, Open Higher Education in Jordan. I think the Chiron people are just, just sitting here, right? Raise your hand. And, um, and I'm, as I believe it works pretty well, but we can uh, hear more about this uh, later in the panel. And this project uh, offers online and offline courses for Syrian refugees and Jordan Jordanian students. Um, thus, we hope to offer perspectives uh, for people arriving and living in host communities. Second, we base our programs on evidence-based research. For example, uh, we published a landscape review with the University of Washington in Information School and a study I can highly recommend is called Education in Conflict and Crisis, How Can Technology Make a Difference? And um, actually I was meant to, to hold up an, uh, um, an example, but um, 
apparently we ran out of examples. And Vanessa is sitting here uh, um, from our team, and we have a stand here. Uh, please come and visit us in our stand. And I believe um, we ran out of uh, uh, examples from, from, from study, but it's also available online. And if you contact us, we can, we can also send it to you. Um, thirdly, Uh, what we want to do is uh, we plan a, um, a conference called um, ICT for Refugees. And we did that in 2016. Maybe some of you were already there. And we want to do another one because um, it is really important for us as the ministry to be more in contact um, with people like you to get ideas for, for new, new um, initiatives and projects. So um, we want to... We want to bring together different sorts of people at the conference, uh, private sector, we want to bring together startups, we want to bring together NGOs, civic activists, development cooperation. And if you're interested in that, uh, please uh, contact us, come to our stand, say, listen, I want to be part of the conference, I want to do this and that, or I just want to be there as an audience, and uh, we will be very happy to invite you. Um, yeah. I hope for a fruitful discussion and uh, on the learnings on opportunities and challenges of digital learning tools and I'm encouraging you all to continue the discussion with us afterwards at the stand. Um, feel free to use our hashtag which is BMZDigital uh, for your inputs. Uh, contact us, contact me. Um, I'm very much looking forward to hear about your experiences and um, recommendations for us. And let us use this panel on digital learning as a tool, as a tool to pool all of our resources to support people like Muataz and more than 65 million refugees worldwide. Let me thank all of you for your dedication and for your, for your interest in, in, in being at the panel. And now let me hand over uh, to Martin. Ah, <laughs> His name is Charles Martin Shields, and I always say Martin. It's, I'm so sorry. Charles Martin Shields from the GDI, from the um, German Development Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you, Katrin. So to start us off, Moataz, uh, you've been a student, and you're here with us in Germany now. Uh, and I think to, to frame the discussion going forward, uh, tell us about your experience Uh, with e-learning and, and how it fit into your life for the last few years. Okay, I would like to start my story with this word, hope. I can describe my whole story, my whole life in Germany in this world. I have been living in Germany since October 2014. I have worked as a social worker um, for one year. I thought, okay, I can stay here in Germany. I can continue working on so I hadn't this idea this to continue my studies because I studied three years in Syria in business administration. Um, in summer of 2015, I saw this um, post on uh, Facebook about uh, Chiron. For me, it was just like a new idea, a new startup. It wasn't something very serious for me. But I said, okay, it was my plan B. Um, and I continued my studying online with Chiron. I finished with them almost one semester online. Also, beside my courses from Syria, All of them got recognized almost. Um, I got recognized from my all studies from Syria, from Chiron, four semesters. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm continuing my studies in business administration. Um, start from October 2017. I started my fifth semester. 
And right now I am in my last semester in marketing. I'm writing my thesis. In one month I will get my degree, finally, after almost <laughs> nine years of studying. My first year at bachelor was in 2009. So it's long term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and before we move on, I'm just, I'm curious, uh, would your experience have been possible without the online option? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is the short answer. The long answer is one year ago, I had totally many plans and no plan. So I had the idea that I can study something else, bachelor again, social work, or I can do house building or something else. I had no plans and I had other plans. But with online learning, I thought, okay, I can just like study one year. It's the same actually as if I were in Syria because I studied there three years, it's four years. Those with Cairo, it's the same for me. If I get back to Syria to continue my studies, it's one year. And here I am studying one year. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, to move to the next presenter, Moroni Teklu from TechChange, uh, you're bringing a, a kind of a private sector technology firm, an e-learning firm's perspective to this discussion. Uh, could you tell us about TechChange and the work you guys do in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Well, hi, everyone. My name is Maron Teklu, and I'm an instructional designer at TechChange, which is an online learning company based in Washington, D.C. Um, we kind of have two different avenues that we take when it comes to online learning. Um, the first of which is that we are in the development space, so um, in the ICT4D space, both in DC but also internationally. Um, we conduct internal courses such as technology for monitoring and evaluation, survey design and data collection and such. Um, and we also have different implementing partners that we work with. Um, those include USAID, World Bank, Oxfam International, and others. Um, so in terms of what I'm bringing to this panel, I guess it'd be the technology perspective. Um, I studied computer science and Africana studies, uh, have roots in the Ethiopian American diaspora community. Um, so this topic in particular, tech for good, is something that I'm pretty passionate about as well. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll move to Henry Kirshner from GIZ. You're based in Jordan and you've been doing educational work in Jordan for a few years now. Tell us about the work you guys have been doing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working with GIZ in Jordan since 2015 as team leader of a project with the long title New Perspectives Through Academic Education for Young Syrians and Jordanians. And thank you for the BMZ for this long title every time <laughs> when I present the project. Then really thank you because uh, it puts not scholarships, we are providing scholarship for young Syrians and Jordanians, we are cooperating with universities. It puts something just in front of the title, it's new perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's about creating new perspectives for people and um, when I uh, talked with Omar Taz and uh, now heard about his uh, biography, so uh, I, I have a lot of similar stories heard by our scholarship holders and I'm often so surprised how similar the biographies are in Jordan for refugees and in Germany. So our idea was not only providing scholarships, but also to support Jordanian institutions dealing with refugees and with higher education to support them to offer a better higher education counseling for students, for Syrians and for Jordanians alike. And uh, also we bring in the experience from 
Germany from German universities in cooperation with Jordanian universities. Fantastic, thank you. And then Maren Kruger from UNHCR. Uh, you'll be bringing kind of a global view to us as well as we, as we go through this discussion, but tell us about the work that UNHCR is doing in the, the connected learning space. Yeah, thank you very much and um, thank you also for inviting me and UNHCR to the panel. I just maybe just give a really brief overview of the situation of refugees and education just to understand a bit what we are talking about and I think Mota's example is really one that explains explains that um, education for refugees is often interrupted because of displacement. So the numbers that had been shared, the 65 million, I think we are in the highest displacement crisis ever. 65 million are all people who got displaced. Out of those 65 million, we have 22 million refugees. And out of those 22 million refugees, 17 million are under the mandate of UNHCR. The other 5 million are Palestinian refugees. So when we are now looking on for all those um, people who got displaced, 22 million are below 18. So there's really a need to focus on education and offer access and quality education. And we have compared numbers of uh, refugees accessing education, primary, secondary and tertiary. And we see there's a huge gap between those who are not affected by displacement and those who are affected by displacement. So on primary level, it's only 61% of refugees who have access to primary in comparison to 21 Uh, 91%. In secondary, it's only 23%. And on tertiary level, it goes down to 1%. So those programs that GIZ is offering or Chiron is offering is really tackling this 1% of, um, uh, of refugees who only have access to tertiary education. And for us as UNHCR, what we do is um, we, we also have a huge scholarship program for tertiary education, but we also offer um, a space for um, actors who are active in the space that is called Connected Learning. It's offering access to higher education through different type of blended learning programs, but we also strengthen the use of technology within primary and secondary education. So all the work that um, you are describing, sort of offering different learning tools and different platforms, different ways of communication to enhance access and to enhance, enhance quality of learning. So these are the two areas, connected education for the whole spectrum and connected learning, which is more in the area of tertiary education. Okay. So I think what I want to do is bring it back to you, Moata. So we've heard this kind of scaling from your personal experience all the way up to the global level. Um, and I want to ask maybe a technology-driven question, but also maybe a, a, a social question. What made the platform work for you? Like, what was it about using the technology that you think, in, in your experience, made it something that, was, that you could succeed using uh, as you were, I guess, essentially establishing a life in Germany? Yeah, in two words, the access and the free. That were just like, uh, because it was accessible for me from my mobile phone, from my laptop, anywhere, any place, any time. It was great um, because I was working. Then I had the opportunity to study after work and so. And it was free because as, as I was new here in Germany, okay, I searched for some online universities. Um, they were, they are just like expensive. Yeah. But with Chiron, it's totally free, not only the studying, but also the counseling, the mentoring, and the language school. All offers are free. Mm -hmm. And then, kind of in that space, did the technology fit into, I think you and I had talked earlier, how did it fit into the rest of your life? I remember you had mentioned to me that it was made easier because your mobile phone is already a space that you turn to. And how did that fit in? Um, yeah, I have been learning online since 2012 with Coursera and other uh, MOOC platforms. Those, it was 
easy for me to get integrated within this system, within this online system. Um, with my phone in my pocket every day and with my laptop and my tablet, it was kind of very, very easy to study online. Okay. And I think that transitions to a few technical questions I want to ask you, Maron. Um, you know, Motaz, you mentioned mobile phones. What are the challenges that you guys at TechChange face when you're developing software and when you're developing interactive experiences uh, that, that you try to work around, especially in low bandwidth environments or environments where someone may only have a mobile phone? Uh, I guess, what would be your top kind of technical fixes and workarounds for dealing with different something as basic as different screen sizes? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Something that isn't a very... Uh, concrete to answer. So the first step is designing for mobile. Um, and the way that we kind of approach that is that there are many different e-learning authoring tools out there. One of them that we use at TechChange is Articulate Storyline. And so when we're thinking about designing for mobile, what we're designing from the beginning is how it will look on that type of screen, right? Tablet versus mobile. Um, you lose a bit of the um, interactive elements. Um, so for our articulate storyline modules, if they are touch-based or if they are a drag-and-drop, um, we might switch that to something more slide-based um, if we're thinking about mobile first. So there's a lot of design considerations. It's not um, in terms of technical things that you were thinking about. It's more of designing with your end user in mind. Okay. And then uh, something that I thought of, and then I want to ask a set of kind of much larger scale questions to, to Henner and Marin is uh, when you're doing design work, how do you think, especially in a mobile environment, because I know you probably use WhatsApp, you probably use Facebook, how do you design to keep the user engaged? Um, especially in a space where they might be getting banners dropping down and, and everything. Is that a consideration? Um, yeah, that's definitely a consideration. So uh, another approach that we have at TechChange is that we don't want our online experience to be boring. Um, and so the way that we do that is we really encourage facilitated courses, um, whether that's live webinars, whether that's live chat, um, discussion forums and such. We are trying to create a platform that is based on community learning, um, which we believe is a bit different from how others may be experiencing their online content. A lot of times it's self-paced. It might be isolated. You might not have a community um, that you can always connect connect to. So being able to have live functionalities, I think it's important. And then also encouraging collaboration within um, your cohort. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a number of cohorts, communities, and I think that's a good transition. Henry, I want to ask about the challenges that you faced working in Jordan at a country level when you're implementing blended learning. Uh, and, and when we talk about kind of social networks and communities, uh, along with the technical questions, what are the challenges that you've faced in, in the previous years? Yeah, first, uh, when we approached uh, forms of digital learning, e-learning, and so on, uh, we learned that uh, this is not uh, welcomed by all uh, actors involved in the field of higher education. It's creating a lot of fear mm -hmm. because it's creating a kind of competition on the level of the teachers and professors. Uh, but it's also um, another problem is that uh, the most important network you have in the region or in Jordan is your your friends, your your direct uh, contacts, not online contacts. Mm -hmm. And so um, we decided to to start our pilot with Chiron as a 
form of blended learning, and uh, this was the right decision. We had the second approach, focusing only online on mentoring. This was not working so well, because uh, you need a direct contact. You need the contact to the people teaching you at least once, and then you can start with, with online learning. You have to create uh, the connection. Uh, so, and uh, so the blended learning approach is a key to, to success. The other one is uh, you have to fight the fears, also among students. So uh, what we, uh, it's an, a point uh, in the discussion is always uh, online education, this is education light. Mm -hmm. mm. This is not really study. We want to have, this is what students say, we want to have the real study. So because uh, online education is not fully accepted. Later, when you have a decree, then it's mentioned it's 20% uh, online, and so we are less, uh, uh, we have a, a better, uh, uh, not so good start in, uh, when we access the labor market. Uh, so these are two points. The other one is this, the social gap. Mm -hmm. So everyone is talking about the digital gap, but in reality, it's always a social gap. And this is something you have to bridge. And uh, so, uh, of course, for, for a lot of people, their main computer is the smartphone. But if you are work, if you are studying and if you are doing some academic work, research in, in databases and so on, so you need a computer. So one of the things was that we provided for our students uh, computers because otherwise uh, they have been in a disadvantaged situation starting their studies. This is, I think, getting into spaces where we're looking at structural inequalities in society and ways that the, the application of technology uh, as opposed to creating a, a good outcome can actually reinforce kind of the perception of kind of the outside group. Um, and that was Jordan-based. My understanding is in Jordan, the Syrian refugees you work with are in urban centers. Is that correct? Yep. Mostly, yeah. Okay. So Marin... If you step away from a situation like Jordan, and we're talking again about how do you keep people connected and blended, um, what about a camp setting? Yeah. I, I can imagine a place like Kakuma that's a long way out. How would you, how would you bridge that gap? Yeah. So, so I think I just want to highlight that all the challenges Hannah had presented, I would be observed them as well. And I think it's really like the one, the sort of, it has to be a blended model. I think that's very obvious. It has to have always an on-site component. So especially, and that's the good thing in a camp setting. You could, you could really set up sort of a community center, a learning center, and give students the opportunity to meet because this is how they learn if they have an opportunity and I asked Motas that question yesterday if you would meet with students also face to face in Berlin and he would he would I think you told me that you prefer to learn by yourself because that's your learning um, habit but sort of having the exchange and this is what we are observing so, sorry I'm quoting you but <laughs> yeah. yeah but we have also regular meetings at yeah. uh, Chiron just like every month or three months or three uh, twice at the year to meet uh, the students from all around Germany to get to know each other also. Yeah. It's very, very important also to meet the students. Yeah, so really this, I think this sort of the mix between online learning and on-site learning, that's what that's the success factor is. And we have observed it in many programs that the dropout rate actually goes down when you have a stronger on-site component because that sort of joint learning and 
also having a tutor, having a site where you can go, having material that is available. A lot of the students, especially in Kakuma, nobody would have a laptop at home. A lot of uh, refugee students do have phones, mm -hmm. but they would not have the connectivity at home to sort of download material. But they have in the space where they go, they could use the, the facilities, they can print out materials, they have a stable connection that they could join webinars and so on. So I think that on-site component is really crucial. And I think I also want to highlight the, the question on perception, because I think that's something that we really observe as well, that there is, depending on the region, there could be quite of a reluctance towards degrees that are obtained in a blended learning setting. So also what we would foster is cooperating with national universities. So we have seen very successful models also in Kenya and Kakuma, where we do have universities from University of Geneva, University from Canada, from the US, who would partner with a national university. And at the end, it's a joint degree. It's a degree issued by an international university and a degree issued by a national university. And that's really the pathway into the labor market, because sometimes if a degree isn't really real recognized on, on country level, it doesn't lead to a, to a next step to an employment. Yeah. And then again, for, for the camp setting, so I think what we also observe is that a lot of students, they would try to compete for a scholarship that is still sort of the preferred option to go and to have a fully funded scholarship to address not only sort of access to university, but also financial barriers, having enough money to pay for transport, having also support services to, to facilitate access to university. But if they don't, uh, they don't find a scholarship, they would sort of join a blended learning program. And in Kakuma, we have programs with Jesuit Worldwide Learning, where over 200 refugees are studying in, a, in an online degree. They do a liberal art bachelor degree. And this is really something where they are connected with students in the US, with students also doing those types of degrees in other countries and it's really a vibrant online community and a lot of refugee students but also students from the host community they can share their stories they can learn from each other and I think they also get really challenged by, by tutors and lecturers in different countries so I think that's that's a really sort of model that is working well and for camp it's I think really the the opportunity through blended learning programs is to expand access we can reach way more people than we could reach via a scholarship program and we can also increase the quality so I think if it's done well and the technology is not only technology but used in the right way, it can really also advance the level of quality of teaching. And Maron, I want to kind of take all of that back to the technology side. Um, when I think of a camp setting or I think of my experience working in rural areas, whether it's at times the South Pacific or Sub-Saharan Africa, um, there are some places where connectivity is fantastic. There are some places where connectivity is a serious challenge. And I know at TechChange, that's an issue you guys deal with quite a bit. Uh, if you were deploying a course into a camp setting or into an urban setting that may not have great connectivity, how do you keep the interactive components and the video components working for the students uh, so that, for instance, they're not buffering all the time? Uh, and these, these kind of, I think, at times, basic considerations. Yeah, I think it's, it's very difficult to account for that. And one way, one method that we've used um, in partnership with our different organizations is um, exporting many of our materials um, to have offline access. So whether that's through USBs or such different hardware um, fixes for that type of scenario. And then I, I get the sense, I, my experience living in Germany is that data protection is a big question. Um, and when you're working in a place like Kakuma or you're working in a place like Jordan with vulnerable populations, uh, in, the, in the course design and when you set up a course, 
Uh, how do you design for privacy protections, especially if you're working with vulnerable communities? Yeah, I think the key there is having uh, an effective privacy policy for all the information on our platform. It's all optional. Um, but at the same time, we do want to encourage um, our users to fill out profiles to build community and to encourage interactions. Um, so one of the topics mentioned was connecting outside of outside of your online platform, which I think is a, is a really good point. And something in terms of the technology where that can come in is platforms such as Google Hangouts or Zoom, other webinar platforms that encourage breakout sessions. Um, those are some platforms that we like to utilize. In addition, um, having meetups in your time zone. So we'll have interactive maps um, based on your location, but all of that information is voluntary. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of privacy protection, we that's something that is a big consideration for us is what to make public and what to keep private. And then in a, in a country like Jordan, I imagine you start to run into issues with kind of arbitrating between legal standards. Uh, Henry, when you were doing work in Jordan, did GIZ have to manage these kind of questions? Is this something that got built into the thinking around uh, bringing students into an online space where they were potentially sharing their information or sharing their their identifiable data? Um, And what that means uh, if you're a refugee, for example, versus a Jordanian citizen? Yeah, in Jordan, they have uh, other standards regarding uh, protecting personal data. Um, When we started in 2015, uh, it was a common practice by the Jordanian government, by the Ministry of Higher Education, to collect the data of all Syrian students starting a study program in Jordan transfer it to the Ministry of Higher Education in Damascus and ask them uh, they really have their uh, exam or they really finished their bachelor and so on. Yeah? So this is a <laughs> quite different way to deal this, with this. Um, for, for us it's clear uh, we are following our strict rules on data protection. It was also something we discussed when we started the cooperation with Chiron and uh, we shared the same perspective on this and uh, so uh, I think for us this is not a problem but I think in general this is uh, of course a problem so um, when the results of uh, exams are published there are with name and results there are published on the walls of the university so everyone can go and, and look at it as another example so I think regarding data protection there is a long way to go in Jordan but uh, we of course we have to deal in another way with this challenge yeah. and then scaling up when we start talking about uh, protection processes uh, in a camp uh, Marin, when UNHCR engages either with uh, with their own platforms, or if you were to work with a provider like TechChange, um, I mean, how do you how do you deal with those challenges? Yeah, maybe just to step back, I think what is really important is that for refugees, that I mean, for everybody, everybody has a right to personal data protection, but specifically for refugees, it's even more important because all of them are fleeing persecution, and there's a reason why we would strongly dis- sort of disadvise on sharing data with the country of origin, for example, no? because there are f- and fleeing persecution, so we don't want that personal data is or like even like living or spaces are available to the, to the government where they are coming from. So there, there's really for, for refugees, there's a, there's a strong need to protect personal data and to make sure 
that that is not sort of available to everybody and who, who might have been agent of persecution before. So I think that's one important point. Then we know that for a lot of, um, that those type of checks have to take place because for admission to university, a lot of personal data needs to be available and also needs to be checked. No, we have to make sure that the student has um, finished secondary school and that all the documents are completed because admission processes to university are always complicated if it's a blended learning program or a traditional program. So this is something where what we have seen maybe as the biggest barrier, and I, th I know that you face similar challenges, is that often students wouldn't arrive with their complete set of documents. So also when they would sort of apply for an online program or a blended learning program, which is maybe managed by a US university or by a Canadian university, they have to go through the same admission process than any other student. And then often their documents might only be copies or they have copies that are not uh, recognized, their certificate have not gone through the equivalency process. So the whole admission process can be very challenging for refugees just because as the set of documents is not available. And then we would say we are working with institutions and they, they use their processes. No, we would not. We have UNHCR has, we have their, our own processes for registrating refugees, but that's more for knowing how many refugees are in a certain context and what their specific needs are to, to determine population data. But for, I would say, registration into education programs, we follow the process that the organization has put in place. And every university has a very thorough process on that. And I think then the third part is sort of on sharing data, sharing information throughout the learning process. And I think then it's up to, the, to each person what type of information they would like to share, because they need to be aware that maybe some of that information is registered, is kept somewhere. So I mean, then also, again, refugees have to be, or I would say, take their own decision how much of their personal story they, for example, would like to share, um, how much they would like to engage maybe in a political discussion and so on. So I think there's uh, sort of different areas of, of data. Henry, you had a comment? Yeah, uh, I just want to give an example how sensitive such data are. So we, we have built up, because we, we learned that we have to deal with highly traumatized people, and uh, we built up a system of psychosocial support. And one part of the system was that we are offering a consultation by psychologists, local Jordanian ones and uh, from Germany. And uh, this is something uh, yeah, really sensitive because it, no, no one of the students want to be handled as a sick person also. And this is what they always associate with the psychologist. And uh, so we made a contract uh, with the psychologist and we, we said, okay, just say the hours you are using and not names. And then... Uh, the controlling or auditing department in GIZ then asked with the first time, where are the names? So for what you spent this money? So we had to explain. Mm -hmm. And now we are putting in the terms uh, for the contracts with the psychologist the uh, code of conduct of the German Society of uh, Psychology, uh, how to deal with uh, patient data. And so it's, it's really important that it's also we, we are creating a setting for such consultations that no one can see coming and going someone and so on. It's, uh, it's a highly sensitive issue and you have to deal appropriate with this. It's actually kind of interesting as you were describing this. I mean, the panel is on e-learning, but in a way the, the e-learning process kind of becomes a vehicle for, in, you know, I, I would say, uh, the transfer of knowledge and skills and processes. As, as you said, the, the German standards for medical data, you're transferring that knowledge to Jordan. 
Uh, and it's kind of interesting to, to see these maybe just unintended effects of using these tools well. Um, I want to ask Moataz a question and then Marin. Uh, in your experience, as an end user, thinking about these security questions, um, you, know, you were based here in Germany. How did, it, how did you feel about the terms of, just the terms of use? Is this something that was an important component of your experience? Did it just exist in the background? Uh, and then the question of document, documentation. How did that fit with your experience as well? And, and did Kiran uh, help facilitate these kind of, I think, rather sticky administrative issues? Yeah, as Marin said, it's not acceptable also for us as refugees to have our um, data um, delivered or contacted to um, the government. In my case, the Syrian government or any other government, because right now I live here in this country, and in general I don't want that my data will be transferred to third party, and I don't understand why. Because um, in Syria, as case, uh, we have for the high school diploma, we have an official website when you can write down the name with the father and the mother on the date and everything, then you can make sure that's okay, this person, the student has this uh, diploma, this high school diploma from this country, from is that right or correct or wrong also? Because I don't understand why um, should any organization in any case um, de to deliver or to contact with uh, any third party. Mm -hmm. and then, Marin, you also had Yeah, but I want to raise a different point um, oh. on an unattended side effect. So I think what we also have seen, because there's maybe this perception that online learning creates very individualized um, learning spaces and that people would sort of only interact with their laptop and they would not have any communication anymore. And I think what we have seen, because we call it sort of connected learning and we insist on the on-site space, that actually collaboration and participation and discussion and communication increases. So I think one of the observations that we have in different programs is that that, that type of of, I would say there's a stronger discussion culture and there's a stronger way of sort of understanding and learning to um, present arguments and to counter arguments and to, to support each other that this is actually increasing. So this is also something what maybe isn't in the, in the perception immediately, but I think what we observe is that sort of that type of collaboration gets strengthened with this throughout a, a connected learning program. And Maron, I know tech change at least back back many years ago when I was there, one very cool output thinking about how you connect with people was uh, we had a group of participants who were all based in Haiti who created their own meetup group. And uh, how does tech change? Because uh, you guys effectively do blended learning in a lot of ways, even though online is the core component. Um, how do you guys take that into the, the wider space? And how do you uh, make these experiences real for people and keep the skills up and keep the networks developed? Yeah, so I think from uh, our internal courses standpoint, what we try to do is... Um, have methods of partnering with other people in your course. So one method is a study buddy method where you are checking in weekly um, with your fellow course participants. And typically we encourage them to be in the same time zone as you, if not the same city, um, so that you could have physical meetups and or virtual. Um, the second is once you finish a tech change course, you are actually in our alumni network of sorts. Um, and so through that network, there are a variety of meetups based on cities and then also different networking happy hours, 
a lot of alumni will post job opportunities, fellowship opportunities and such, so that your learning continues. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are just a couple methods on how we try to blend both the online learning aspect and then in-person opportunities. Oh, and, and thinking of job opportunities and seeking kind of post-training opportunities, um, I want to maybe start with you, Moataz. As you were going through this process, you mentioned at the start, it was kind of just something you were doing. You didn't have a a long plan. As your experience has continued, um, how has the online experience transferred into identifying opportunities for further education, opportunities for professional, uh, professional development or jobs here in Germany? Um, yeah, in my experience, first of all, it was just like startup as Chiron uh, before three years. Um, I gained a lot of confirm- uh, much confirmation, um, much knowledge from this organization about my work. As I worked as a social worker, I needed some knowledge in this field. So as I get online with my account from Chiron, I learned some aspects about this social field. I get also some online courses about uh, on the language, English or um, German. After that, I was concerned of uh, the recognition. After I see, if I've seen that's okay, this organization is well uh, recognized right now. It's uh, these courses are recognized. I can right now also go further with my process to continue my studies because it's not only startup. It's well recognized uh, organization with all the outcomes are recognized to continue my studies. It's about the recognition. So this is a. It sounds like a very key thing. There is there is purpose built into the Kiran model. Uh, around kind of making sure that these these outputs are recognized, that you have access to the job market. Um, and in this case, you were talking about being a social worker, making sure that the skills that you're picking up in the online platform feed back into the work you're already doing. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the laws in Germany, but I would ask Henner and Marin, uh, when you think about learning outcomes and online platforms, Uh, one question I'd have is expectation management and how, how you deal with that in Jordan or how you deal with that in, in a, a variety of settings. And also, how do you navigate well labor laws that in some cases can be structurally discriminatory? Um, would you... You can start with the Jordan model. Hey? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, this is uh, our toughest uh, mm-hmm. challenge. Um, We, we want to create new perspectives and this means we don't want to use uh, a three-year study program as a parking lot for refugees. <laughs> so our goal is to really create perspectives, long-lasting perspectives for people accessing labor market, find a, a stable situation where they are able to found a family uh, to settle and at least for some years. Uh, the difficulty is that uh, Jordan itself is struggling with a high rate of unemployment Mm -hmm. and so the Jordanian government is also under pressure uh, to provide uh, jobs for mainly for Jordanians and uh, this is a really strong challenge in in the field of academic jobs so with uh, the the white collar jobs the blue collar jobs there are opportunities and they are used also in, in, in programs by the German Development Corporation. But regarding the white-collar jobs, there are, we have to find gaps in the, uh, in the system, but uh, 
it has to be a win-win situation for Jordan and uh, for the for the refugees. And so one could be a more precise or more uh, specific consultation before uh, refugees start their study, mm -hmm. because they have to know what is possible. Mm -hmm. um, so when when you offer a scholarship program and they can choose their, their subject, 80% uh, of the May students are choosing engineering. Mm -hmm. But engineers, there are already a lot of them, but Jordan is looking for people, for software developer, for uh, people in IT, uh, in the field of IT works. Uh, so, and this creates opportunities for refugees. So it's also not not about only offering scholarship programs, also offering a really qualified consultations for mm -hmm. uh, people entering higher education. Yep. Thinking from the end on. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, and I, I fully agree. And I mean, we have a lot of discussion on that specific Jordan example because we, I think the, the most, the first question that you have to ask is the legislation allowing um, refugees to um, obtain employment. And then it really depends country by country how the regulations are and if it's fully accessible, if it's only accessible for certain areas, if there's a huge unemployment rate anyway. So, I mean, these are really all the factors to consider. So, it's very hard to give a generic over, uh, like statement on that. But the, I think the Jordan example is one where we, we are facing or we will face because we had a huge increase of refugees accessing universities with, the, I think, the perspective that most likely they will return to Syria. But now, being in the seventh year of the crisis, we, we, I think the return is not foreseen for very soon. So I think there are, we need to find different ways on, on tackling that. And I think we have... Um, yeah, I fully agree with sort of the support services. I think that's necessary, counseling, mentoring, but also exploring areas of employment um, beyond borders. There are opportunities and types of coding and types of workplaces are becoming more virtual and more global. And I think especially those students who are coming through connected programs, they have a lot of skills for those type of workplace. But on the other hand, I think there's a, the same sort of advice for transition into employment as any student has to follow. It's not, it's not something that's only for online programs. It's for any type of university degree. And what we have seen in Rwanda, for example, where is the country where refugees do have the right to work, um, we have a partner, Kepler, working with Southern New Hampshire University, providing bachelor degrees, and they have set up an internship program, and they have set up a board of private companies who are sort of advising the program exactly on those questions, on where are the future gaps, what type of profile do we need, what type of graduate do we need, what type of skills are necessary, so that those companies can sort of provide advice to the curriculum and make sure that the students are gaining those skills. And then while they're in the program, all the students, all the refugee students have to do an internship and they are supported and find that place. But again, this is in a context where the right, of, uh, right to work for refugees is allowed. So I think that's, that's one, the, the legal barriers are to identify and then I think the sort of identify the gaps for employment opportunities, but also then there are different ways of engagement. There are entrepreneurship possibilities, it's possible to set up startup. There are a lot of refugees who are sort of engaged in their community structure and it's still, I still would argue that there's a value on higher education even if no employment opportunities is immediately available. So I think uh, these are the, the future generation, they need leadership skills, they need sort of, they are role models for their, their community, so, so there are a lot of impact and positive benefits not only for the learner but for a broader network. It actually 
Yeah, I would like to highlight this point about expectations. I quitted my university in Damascus 2013. I get back to university offline here in Berlin last semester, October 2017. I started also, I started with Chiron two years part-time. Um, last semester, I had almost six courses, internship. I worked with Chiron, scholarship, got engaged. I had a lot to do, but yeah. <laughs> but as expectation, just like online learner, online student, you cannot do it. I got in my courses at the university 1.3, 1.3, 1.7, 1.7, 2.3, international law it was, and one course it's just like past. So those, as online learner, we can do it to study online than to study offline with good grades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And these are the exact same grades than anybody. So I think I would not put it because it's online. It's like you're following the courses in a different way, but the grade is like anybody else who would have attended the course. The same. Traditionally, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I remember being at the BMZ stand yesterday, listening to uh, two speakers talk about projects in Africa, um, essentially accelerator programs. Uh, and, I, and I think as we're talking about e-learning, uh, there's a much bigger discussion that we could have about... Uh, the role of digitalization in job opportunities uh, and the role of startups in creating job opportunities. And Marone, when you talked about how you link people from your courses, um, you know, something that kind of came to mind was to say, you know, do these platforms provide an avenue to say, yes, you're going to be doing the online learning, you're going to be doing the training, but are there efforts made to link these learning opportunities to programs like these accelerators where students can come in and say, I already have these skills, there's an accelerator that's being run for this community, and, uh, and, and how is there, is there concurrence between these programs and uh, what kind of challenges would you face to do that? Yeah, I think in terms of the tech change model, um, with our live webinars, we bring guest experts from around the world to come talk in our courses. Um, most of them in the development space. A lot of them startup founders themselves. Uh, so we do a 20 to 30 minute uh, session with them, followed by a 20 to 30 minute Q&A with our online participants. And in that Q&A and offline as well, our participants are able to connect with them uh, to learn more about their company and their role, and then also potentially link up for job opportunities and such through that connection. Now, I want to ask, too, across your participant, kind of the distribution of participants, um, you know, how many are coming from developed countries, how many are coming from developing countries, uh, and then how many of your participants uh, would you, I guess, qualitatively categorize as forcibly displaced or coming from communities that are that would qualify as being vulnerable? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of our internal courses, about 10,000 of our users are based in the U.S. Um, and then our biggest countries um, in Africa are Kenya and Ghana um, for our user bases. And then we have a lot in um, Eastern Europe as well um, and some folks in Australia um, and the Philippines. So it's, it's kind of spread out. Um, but with our implementing partners, we're able to reach a, a lot of other countries as well. Okay. And then, I guess, scaling up to the country level, uh, how much interaction, in your experience, Henner, is there between the blended learning that you're doing and other GIZ programs that may have a job development 
or a labor development focus? And is that a space as you go forward where you could see opportunities for concurrence in, in, a, in kind of when we talk about bigger policy questions? Of course, for us, it's, it's an advantage that uh, GIZ also has a program and partnership with the Ministry of Labor in Jordan. So uh, when we want to discuss some issues with uh, Jordanian partners, uh, we mostly find open doors and open ears. And uh, they really try to support us in the limits of their policy. Um, so this helps us a lot, but also in, in other fields, there, there are a lot of synergies. Um, an example, we are supporting uh, a program on social work for refugees at uh, one of the Jordanian universities mm -hmm. and they have lacking uh, material, textbooks uh, on social work in general and uh, on and specific on mental health and psychosocial support. And so we, together with a program, focusing on providing uh, psychosocial support uh, structures for NGOs working with refugees. We provided uh, the build-up of a knowledge hub based in Beirut, not in Jordan, but providing this necessary textbooks and teaching material for the study program in uh, Jordan. So uh, there is a lot of cooperation and uh, we are using our synergies. Yeah. You know, I, I really would like to highlight that because I think the whole the whole area of education is a pure development cooperation topic. No, there's the, for, from a sustainable perspective, this sits within the the development cooperation and the humanitarian world. Sort of need to th there needs to be a better bridge between those two structures. And I think we are we are in the lead up of the global compact for refugees that will hopefully be signed in September by the or approved by the General Assembly. And there's a really strong emphasis on this nexus between the humanitarian world and the development. World and also getting the private sector more engaged. And we call it the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework. It's a very technical term, but it's really about bridging that gap, getting development actors engaged. And it's really for access to education. It's the, the key partners are ministries of education, ministries of higher education, and they, have, they receive support by development actors. And this is a long-term programmatic sustainable support and where we have to make sure that refugees are included and not excluded. So our contribution is to, to identify barriers to communicate those barriers and make sure that refugees do have access. The same for accessing employment. I think that's the same. That there's a, In a lot of countries where refugees live, it's a huge unemployment rate for young people anyway. So there's a question, what is, what, how does the whole sector for young people in that country and how does the whole job market has to develop to make sure that more young people have access? And then again, we have to make sure that refugees are not excluded. So I think that, that type of bridging and, and advocating for inclusion into existing systems, that's, that's the future way to go for, for education, for employment opportunities, for health, for any, any of those sectors. And I, I just want to ask, is, is that a space where UNHCR's innovation hub mm -hmm. gets involved? No, I think the innovation team, it's, it's more a team. team. Um, I think they are really more to, to challenge UNHCR's organization and to test new ideas. So we hit, for example, instant network schools. It's a model with Vodafone Foundation using tablets in a school, training teachers, having like solar panels, connectivity in schools. It's the innovation team who has sort of brought that on board, but it's now incorporated into our education program. So I think the innovation team, it's really about 
identifying any way of new way of working, new way of thinking. It can be with technology. It can be just a totally different approach to something, and then testing them and be open to failure, and then make sure that technical units within UNHCR will take over. So I think it it could be on technology. It is not necessary on technology. Yeah. So we're we're coming close to the close. We have about six minutes left. Um, Moataz, I want to I want to put you on the spot if you don't mind. No problem. Okay. Um, as you've been listening, as someone who has experienced this yourself, um, if you had the opportunity to say to our other three panelists, uh, what would be uh, one technology issue that you would want a Kiran or a Tech Change to focus on to improve your experience? What would be one country-level issue that resonated with you that might be of interest to Henna, and what would be kind of one global issue that over the years has resonated with you that you would want to share with Marin? I think I'd be really curious to hear what those takeaways would be as you've been participating and listening. Um, technical problem, I think it could be as obstacle, the internet connection with a good laptop, because okay, through my handy through my mobile phone I can learn online but it's just like with WhatsApp, Facebook and so on and so on so it's difficult um, on the other side it's about the regulations, about the financial sides, about the perspective as I said for one year I had no plans because I hadn't had this um, perspectives, I, I had no plans to, 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 to plan for my future um, on the highest level I think it's to to provide this access to all um, refugees to plan their uh, future. Because refugee is just like humanitarian um, status. We can do everything as everyone, but we need some tools. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And uh, to, kind of, to kind of pull everything back together, I think what I've found really compelling is, as I've been listening is that uh, we started by saying uh, e-learning at the start. And we were talking about e-learning technology. Um, and Moataz, we heard your story. And it got us talking. And, and as we continued the conversation, what became apparent was that e-learning is, is as much something that, that you can do uh, on your mobile phone as much as in, in the case of the work you're doing, Henner, it's a vehicle for a lot of other development cooperation opportunities. It's providing opportunities for knowledge and information sharing. Uh, in the case of your work, Marone, you know, you're seeing opportunities through a really well-designed social platform, not only for people to learn online, but for people to identify potential partners, potential colleagues, and discover someone working in your city that you may not have known is doing the work you're doing. Um, and then I think at the, at the very top level, the concurrence between opportunities, the way that these blended learning programs create opportunities for work, create opportunities for refugees who may be in a camp setting to reach out. And, and Moataz, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a big part of this is, you mentioned at the start, hope. Um, I imagine a huge challenge when you're going through this kind of transition is finding an anchor and finding a direction to go. And uh, it, it seems like in a really neat way, uh, e-learning provides through a constellation of, of processes uh, a, a vehicle for that for you and, and I would imagine for many others. So I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I want to thank the audience and especially our presenters. 
Uh, we'll be at the BMZ stand if you have further questions. Uh, and I know that BMZ is very excited to carry on this work. There will be workshops coming, as Katrin said. And I'll hand it back to our stage manager. Thank you.